bring in some thoughts we began last week. I titled a series that really would be dealing with some issues of worldliness, for lack of a better focus, and its influence on us as a church, on our lives individually. And I've, I've kind of put this under the umbrella of the theme of coastal erosion, something that we're very familiar with here in New Orleans. But it plays a helpful illustration for us to realize that as the, the, as the church, we're called to be in a place that's going to be near the storm surge of the world. The world is a vibrant Category 6 hurricane. Now, there's no such thing as a Category 6 hurricane. I do know that. But this would be a Category 6 hurricane. And it is violently in opposition to the church and to the people of God. And it is aggressively seeking its opportunity to touch every one of our lives. And so we talked last week about the proximity of the church and our need, just as New Orleans needs distance between itself and the Gulf of Mexico. There needs to be a wise separation between every one of our lives and the world in which we are a part. Today, I want to narrow a little bit our focus into what we're going to call levy failure. Uh, coastal erosion was last week. This week it's levy failure, eroding the way we think. If you look in your outline there, a familiar battle of the ages is keeping the world out of the church. This is not new. Nobody's inventing the message here today. This goes back to the moment in which Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. There was the need for the world and for the influence of the enemy to be kept out of the heart of the people of God. And what began there, the process of deception, continues today. We can't be ill-informed about that. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in your outline says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That you, oh, pardon me, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And there's so much in this verse, I'm only using it to tease out the purpose for which, why are we having to study carefully this morning this issue about the world, and particularly the world as it influences the way that we think? The mental processes that go into how you and I interact with information, draw conclusions, make decisions about our lives and what we will do and what we will believe and what we will hold on to, what we will discard. There's a great label in here of things that are good, acceptable, and perfect. How does one get to being able to accurately use those terms? Remember, I think I said last week, I can't remember which, what I say in some services between the two, but last week we talked a little bit about the way in which the world throws around the term good and the way in which Jesus would not allow people to do that. Now, how do you label good? What is good in life? Well, here we learn that good and acceptable and perfect has to do with the will of God. And how does one ever get to know what the will of God is? Well, it's by having their mind to function correctly. How does one's mind ever function correctly? By having it transformed and renewed. Now, now realize the warning that's here. If you don't transform your mind and you don't renew your mind 
And the reason for it needing to be renewed is because of the presence of the world around us. That's where this verse starts. Do not be conformed to the world. How do you escape that? By being transformed, by having your mind renewed, a supernatural event that takes us out of the way of thinking of the world and brings us into the very mind of God. And once the mind of God begins to settle into our minds, then at that moment I can figure out what's good and what's acceptable and what's perfect. Now, if I don't transform my mind, if I leave my mind in the condition that it's naturally in as a human being, listen, I will not discern what is good. I will not be able to. I will detach good from the will of God. I will detach good from God. Do you know how many people in the world today are running around using the label good about things in their life, but they don't even believe in God? They don't believe in a future destiny. They don't believe that a God engineered and designed existence for man on earth and it has a goal and it has a purpose and we're here to fulfill it. They don't believe into that, but they call that good. And this is good in my life. Things are going so good. You understand, those are misused labels. You can't use the label good apart from the will of God. Now, now using, using that, and this is, you know, I'm, this is going to be a, a philosophy class today is really what it's going to be. And maybe not used to staring at this sort of material, but we, we need to think philosophically. Because the way in which the world gets into our thinking patterns is, is at a very base level. And we don't pay attention to that sort of thing. When we talk about moving away from the world, too many of us has, have touted worldliness as uh, music and movies and cigarettes. You know, that's worldliness. Are you worldly? I mean, that's how I'm going to find out. You know, what movies do you go to? and What music do you listen to? And, and, and you smoke cigarettes. Uh, well, that sounds worldly to me. Well, uh, that, that may be an expression of elements of worldliness, but worldliness can be in you much, much deeper than that. And you can trim the edges of the bushes and say, oh, I don't go to those sorts of movies and I don't listen to that kind of music and, and I don't smoke anymore. OK, so I mean, I'm going to hang in there with you with your message today. But worldliness, I think I'm all over that. I think I'm pretty good. Well, that's not primarily the concern. Today, I'm very concerned, very, very, very concerned for the way we think as a culture, the way we think as a culture. And this problem of keeping the world out of the church, uh, Ken Hughes, which, by the way, I'm going to quote a little bit from his book. Um, this book set apart. We've got a number of copies of it. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, Ken Hughes is a is a great author because he's a, he's a simple pastor who takes fairly complex things and makes it very accessible. Uh, let me recommend this book to you for a number of reasons. Uh, it will put you in touch with how the Bible is supposed to collide with the world. It will inform you about attitudes in the world that you may not have known, that you have already embraced. And you are already walking in and you've perhaps never brought a scripture passage alongside of it to see, ooh, that's a problematic attitude that I've been embracing and walking in in my life. Let, let me recommend this to uh, particularly those who are younger, uh, our, our youth group. This, this would be a great book for parents to go through with teenagers because it will walk you through the collision of philosophies that are all around us that our young people are absorbing without realizing they're absorbing it. 
uh, probably what I'm going to say today is most critically, it's all for all of us, but most critically needing to be heard by teenagers and pivot age guys who are forming a philosophy on how you're going to walk your way through life. This would be very, very helpful. It's a very easy read. It's not that long. It'll make you feel like you actually read a book when you're done. Um, so set apart is a number of them uh, available to you in the book nook today. Ken Hughes says in this book, all of this together, the ignorance, the spiritual anarchy, the growing acceptance of relativism among Christians, divorce rates that exceed those of secular culture, the rise of cohabitation among professing Christians, the increase of worldliness in the church despite growing attendance and Bible reading, suggests that the church is becoming indistinct from the world. And more, the failure of its increasing numbers to make a difference in the world shouts of compromise. Indeed, what we see now may be an Indian summer, the last gasp of warm, sunny days before a long, dark, spiritual winter. Now, I, I, I share his soberness today. And I'll tell you why as we get into some, some of the philosophy of thought that's present in our culture. But this is not a problem that's just present with us. Romans 12 warns us about it. If you go back to the late 1800s, you find this statement from Charles Spurgeon. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. This is not a new problem. This is not a technological problem. This is not a modern day problem. This is a, a recurring problem always for the church. Now, what's interesting for Charles Spurgeon here, it, he's not only highlighting some issues of moral behavior, but in Charles Spurgeon's day, there was, there was what he had, had labeled and others had labeled a downgrade controversy where the gospel was being downgraded and the philosophy of the day was flowing, and we'll look at this in a moment, flowing out of the age of enlightenment where man fell in love with his ability to reason and rationalize his way through life. Well, he brings those reasonings and rationalizations to the Bible and something called higher criticism begin to look at Scripture through a different set of eyes and pull the supernatural dynamics out of it and pull elements of Scripture out and no longer believe and endorse what had been accepted as Orthodox Christianity. And there was this downgrade controversy. At the close of, of Spurgeon's life, he was fighting this, what seemed to be fighting a losing battle at the end of his life. It was a great period of depression personally for him as he, as he fought for uh, biblical accuracy in what people believed. At the end of the 1800s, a group of Charles Spurgeon-type people uh, got together. These were committed Christians, theologians, got together and formed and wrote a group of books called The Fundamentals. Now, the reason why that was written was because the fundamentals were falling to pieces in the age of enlightenment that was taking them apart. So the fundamentals got created right around the turn of the century. Eventually, that terminology is what you and I have been attached to. We are fundamentalists. Now, that's where that originates, and that was actually a great term in the turn of the century. Later on in the 20th century, it began to be a negative term associated with people who were, uh, just their attitudes was, was religiously staunch and difficult. But that was what he was fighting. In the 1600s, Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, said, all the danger is when the world gets into 
the heart. The water is useful for the sailing ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So the fear is when the world gets into the heart. The danger of water getting in, right? We know something about that, don't we? It's a great danger in our city of water getting into it. You know, one of the things that I found interesting at the right after Katrina hit and there was some search for remedies for all the failures of levees and the coastal erosion issues and there was this visit, remember all the folks who went over to the Netherlands and visited over there and tried to learn from how they have uh, fought their own battle with the water? Well, that whole area there, the Netherlands, means under the earth. They are all below sea level, severely there. And what was interesting was to hear their philosophy. Their philosophy is 24-7, always, we are fighting a war with the sea. Always. They are always appropriating money. They are always planning. They are always mindful. They are always paying attention. They are always looking and monitoring everything they've built. Is there weakness anywhere? And I thought, you know, that's, that's the attitude that the church has got to have. We are always fighting a war with the world. Always. We always must be on our guard. We always must be wise. We must appropriate what we talked about last week into the practices of our lives. God has designed, if you will, a levy system around the church. And it, it, is a, it is a doctrinal levy system. It is a belief system. It is truth-oriented. It is intended to protect us. Now, the problem in the church today is the problem that this city had. Breaches have developed in the, the wall of truth that's supposed to be protecting us. There are breaches now in the body of Christ because theology and doctrine have become neglected. The average person doesn't study the Bible very well, doesn't formulate strong views from Scripture. And those weaknesses are sort of like the 17th Street Canal and the London Canal and the Industrial Canal. And there are weaknesses there that are just awaiting the day when the world will push hard against it. And our belief system will give way and in, into the church will come a flood of the world. So we need to be careful. We need to be wise today. I want to, I want to strengthen. Uh, I, you know, I'm about to say I want to be the Corps of Engineers, but I really don't want to be the Corps of Engineers. There's nothing positive about being the Corps of Engineers these days. Uh, I don't hope Robert's not here this morning. Um, we do have a Corps of Engineer engineer in the church. But last week we talked about being wise about keeping the world out of our hearts. There's a great need to make sure our affections are not being enticed and lured and built and promoted by the world. We looked last week at Lot. Lot lifted up his eyes. And there was something in his heart that he wanted. And that desire in him was enough to create an allurement that the world could hook and draw him in. We need to keep the world out of our hearts. This week I want to talk about keeping the world out of our heads. Keeping the world's way of thinking out of our way of thinking. Now I don't know if you've noticed this. Some people are into this kind of information. Some people just don't bother. But thinking... The way in which people think all around us is undergoing a vast paradigm shift. People's thinking is drastically changing. It, it, I would put it, I would put it, it's a little quieter and it doesn't quite have the same loud fireworks to it, but I would put it on the scale of what took place in the 60s. 
matter of fact, I would say the 60s sowed some of the seeds that we are experiencing in the paradigm shift of thought. Now, obviously, we know the 60s, the radical 60s, the revolutionary 60s, was a time of incredible change in the way people thought. As a matter of fact, I've heard it said that from the 60s to the 80s, in that 20-year period, there was a greater change in how people thought than in the previous 200-plus years. What an incredible season of headlines that we have and remembrances that we have. But when you get to the 60s, what, you know, what produced that? What, what made this such a season that was so ripe for thinking to change? Well, what went into the first 50 years of the last century? There was a great collision of ideologies on the table for humanity. There was all these, you know, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, and the Vietnam War. What, what all those things were, they, they, weren't, they weren't ancient wars that was a fight over territory. These were fights for ideologies. These were people trying to advance the way to think in the world. We got labels like communism, fascism, socialism, free enterprise. These were ideologies that people believed and their convictions caused them to go to war with each other in order to advance their convictions. Well, that ideological soup finds itself in the 60s. And the expression of people who now are in a place where they want to think differently than they have. And rebellion grows out of that and challenging what's been there. And uh, all of a sudden we've got the, the, the movement of just rebelling against every form of authority. You know, being anti-establishment. You know, stick it to the man. You know, all these ideas that were in the 60s. Grow your hair. Just, just do something different. Dress different than everybody else has dressed. Grow, you know, short hair. Remember, you remember, what people, you remember the Beatles, the first album of the Beatles? Remember what they looked like? It's little boys. They didn't look at Sgt. Pepper's uh, album cover. You know, what happened to these guys? Well, there was expressions, and this is what's critical eventually when we talk about the worldliness of the church. See, philosophy finds its way out into an expression somewhere. You begin to live your philosophy. You want it to get expressed. When you start believing something, you want it to be expressed in your life. And, and ways of life shifted. The hippie movement comes in. Ways to do relationships completely change. Work ethics change. The pursuit of pleasure and responsibility changed. Homelessness got birthed in the 60s. I mean, you, can you trace history and find a huge population of homelessness? Before the 60s, it was a way of life. Move from place to place, a gypsy lifestyle. Pursue pleasure at all costs. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All that stuff came out of the 60s. Now, what's interesting is this, this magnetic pull of the world on the church. Do you remember what happened to the church in the 60s and the 70s? Do you remember, some of you guys were part of this. Some of you guys came to Christ in this. Do you remember the Jesus movement? Remember the Jesus freaks? You know, what was interesting is the Jesus freaks were, you know, a, a, a God was in this. God used this. God reached people. God, people got saved. But what was interesting is how the church wore the garb of its time. You know, what you had was you had the church having to deal with a lot of issues that were, you know, free love. I mean, everything was about just free sex. Well, those were issues the church got got drawn into that people were getting saved but these were the issues of the day the philosophy of the day was in the church pulling on it 
And, you know, if you live through that time and you know somebody who came to Christ during that time, you, you, you will remember some of the adjustments that needed to be made in the church during that time. A lot of people got saved and that was great, but, but don't overlook the fact that there was a lot of challenge during that time. Now, let me highlight something philosophically because it's going to pop up again and again. And I'll talk about it later on. It's going to pop up today in our setting. Do you remember what got elevated in the 60s and early 70s? What, what characteristic got elevated as noble and most worthy was love, wasn't it? Right? I mean, the flower children, you know, all dressed up, just scattering love everywhere, right? Peace and love and everybody just get along with each other. And that was what was highlighted as the noble characteristic to be pursued. It filtrated into music, you know, the Beatles, all you need is love. Remember? Make love, not war. This nobility of love, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. I'm not sure why it is that man chooses that to be noble. But there's this, this element that if we just embrace that quality, that dynamic, we don't need all this other truth. Let's just embrace love. You know, John Lennon's song, Imagine There's No Heaven. Now, if you think through it, that song is going to fit the philosophy of today in an incredible way. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, what on earth, why is that a good thing? Well, because you basically would have this lobotomized group of people who, who don't have any convictions about anything. Imagine there's no heaven and there's no hell, so there's, there's nothing to believe in. Imagine all the people living life, life in peace. You can say, I'm a believer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will live as one. That is so stupid. I'm sorry. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be nice here. I'm thinking somebody likes that song in this group. Uh, that is, you know, John, pull your head out of wherever it is stuck. See, this, this would be biblical idiocy. Because the problem here is not that we don't all want love. The problem is, I'm selfish and I'm going to step all over you on my way to get love, John. I'm going to war and kill you if I have to to get love. What, you just joined the planet three minutes ago? You don't think that from the garden people haven't been trying to love each other? It's not a, it's not a fact that people don't want to love each other. It's that we can't. We're too selfish and sinful to do it. Somebody better solve that problem. Don't just sing a song about, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if none of us believed in anything? Wouldn't it be nice if none of us had convictions? See, because if I didn't have convictions, then I couldn't disagree with you. I believe in a heaven and a hell, and you don't. Well, we're going to disagree, and well, you know where disagreements go. This could turn to war. Well, that's, the, that's what John Lennon grew up in. The 50 years preceding him writing music. Was ideologies that went to war over what they believed. Wouldn't it be great if we could just create a world where there weren't any ideologies, where no one had any convictions about anything? Wouldn't we all just get along then? Welcome to 2007. This is the world that you are being prepared for. And I hope we're paying attention to this. I want to trace out some thought here. I'm going to use Francis Schaeffer's 
view of how ideologies progress. Millard Erickson, in his book, says, Francis Schaeffer suggests that the progression of what he calls the line of despair is from philosophy to art to music to the general culture and finally to theology. So I want us to walk through this, this process of paradigm shift. Changes in the way we think. And I'm going to follow his outline there. I think it's very helpful, very clear. Beginning with philosophy. Remember, philosophy is the building blocks for why we live the lives that we live. Why we think the way we think. It's the, the deeper realities that we cling to. And philosophy is going to give way to what we're calling today, or what the social folks are calling today, postmodernism. But postmodernism, in and of itself, is very difficult to understand. So I can't start in postmodernism because it's actually a protest or a reaction to what existed before it. So I'm, let me take us back a little ways to three elements that lead up, two elements that lead up to postmodernism. Enlightenment. If you're much of a philosopher, these are familiar terms. The, the age of reason. The Enlightenment is often closely linked with the scientific revolution. For both movements emphasized reason, science, and rationality. Inspired by the revolution of knowledge commenced by Galileo and Newton, Enlightenment thinkers believed that systematic thinking might be applied to all areas of human activity. The more man began to know, the more he fell in love with what he knew, and the more he fell in love with his ability to know things. So the age of reason, the ability for man to reason his way through life and come up with conclusions on how to solve everything, to figure out everything, began to be the mode of thinking that was coming into man's lives. This gave way to a period called modernism, which is where we actually are still in the process of exiting. Modernism is a trend of thought that affirms the power of human beings. This is where humanism finds its great stage. The power of human beings to create, improve, and reshape their environment with the aid of scientific knowledge, technology, and practical experimentation. It's the natural outflow of enlightenment. You fall in love with your ability and your knowledge and your ability to be rational and figure things out, and you elevate your ability. And welcome to modernism. Now, Postmodernism is the era of thinking that we're entering into right now. D.A. Carson, in his book that we'll look a little bit more closely at next week, he says the fundamental issue in the move from modernism to postmodernism is epistemology. And I'm glad he used a word that none of us knew what it meant. So we could actually think, what on earth is this thing about? Epistemology, in, in your notes there, it says how we know things. Or think we know things. Epistemology has to do with knowledge and the knowability of that knowledge. So this is where the fundamental issue takes place. It is about how we think. Not just what we think, but how we think. Epistemology. Modernism is often pictured as pursuing truth, absolutism, linear thinking, rationalism, certainty, the cerebral as, a as opposed to effective. Now, look at John MacArthur's thought as he further defines what postmodern is in contrast to modernism. Postmodernism, in general, is marked by a tendency to dismiss the possibility of any sure and settled knowledge of the truth. Just, you know, it's just not possible to be able to lay hold of sure knowledge of the truth. Postmodernism suggests 
that if objective truth exists, it cannot be known objectively or with any degree of certainty. Now, please notice these words. Certainty. This is a reaction to modernism. It's the world moving away from the thought that we are certain, we have our ideas, we can draw a line, our logic, our reasoning, we figured it all out. Well, well, you know, man has lived long enough in that. That didn't work. So now the pendulum is swinging in a new direction, the postmodernism. So we're moving away from certainty. Now you can't be certain about anything. You can't be sure about truth. If there even is such a concept as truth. That is because the subjectivity of the human mind makes knowledge of objective truth impossible. So it is useless to think of truth in objective terms. Nothing is certain. And the thoughtful person will never speak with too much conviction about anything. Everyone is entitled to his own truth. Postmodernism, therefore, signals a major triumph for relativism. The view that truth is not fixed and objective, but something individually determined by each person's unique subjective perception. All this is ultimately a vain attempt to try to eliminate morality and guilt from human life. You know, what's, what's happened here, and, and, you know, and as you read through that, there are elements of truth in everything that was said. Finite being with limited past experience, everybody comes from, you know, you're an English-speaking person, you come from America, you grew up in a certain setting, you define life out of your context. All that's true. You have limitations, you don't know everything, and you bring yourself to a concept. We'll call that concept truth. You bring yourself to that concept, and now you are left to interact with that. So imperfect, weak, misled, misguided, misinformed individual comes to truth. And postmodernism says, because you're the one coming to it, you can never understand it. It can't be found out. And so what's interesting, this is what's interesting. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he speaks to them. He reveals, remember we started this, that if our minds get transformed, we actually can know the will of God, right? Remember where we started in Romans 12? So in other words, God has said we actually can know truth. We actually can know that which is good and pleasing and acceptable to him. We can know it. Our mind will need to be renewed, but we can know it. What postmodernism says is you cannot know it. What God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden... And he gave them specific directions. Remember, the serpent came along and lied to them. And his technique of lie was, Have God said... Hmm, is that really what God said? Do you have it right from him? Did he really say that? And then he corrupted God's motive in what he said. Now, what's interesting today is the battle... And this is what's, what we're going to see more next week than this week. The battle in the church is not to deny that God has said something. The battle that the, and the lie that the enemy is now telling is it, it really doesn't so much matter what God has said because you really can't figure out what he said anyway. Either way, the goal is to disconnect man from truth. Either it's because God really didn't say that and you really can't be sure about he said that. Now, can you really trust the Bible? This is higher criticism. This is what Spurgeon had to deal with. Today, it's, well, we're not going to fight that battle. Sure, the Bible exists and it says all kinds of things, and we're not even going to argue over whether what it says is reliable, whether we need to do um, proving that the Bible is actually trustworthy, all the apologetics that we've learned through all these years. Postmodernism, it doesn't care. It doesn't care whether the Bible's true or not. The problem is no longer with the Bible, the problem's with you. 
And you can't understand the Bible anyway. So when you come along, you say, the Bible says this. The postmodern guy turns around and says, uh, well, that's, I, I guess that works for you. I don't really think it says that. And he doesn't think, he thinks it says something else. You know, all of us are looking at this thing and we're all coming up with something different. And that's absolutely okay in the postmodern world. That's acceptable. That's the way it should be in the postmodern world. Now, let's, let's travel through this progression that Francis Schaeffer mentioned. I'm going to skip art and music. We just jump to general culture. How has this ideology found its way into the way we think today in the general culture? Well, Josh McDowell has written a book called The Last Christian Generation. He kind of has a little bit of the alarm sound that uh, the Indian winter or Indian summer sound that Ken Hughes has. You know, is the church gasping its last breath? Now, I think it's a bit hyperbole because of a sovereign God, but I appreciate the sense of soberness. Listen to the shift in the meaning of words that's in our culture today. And sometimes putting these next to each other help us to realize how much we aren't paying attention that we're moving with the tide. We kind of feel a little bit this way about some of these things. Tolerance. Tolerance used to mean accepting others without agreeing with or sharing their beliefs or lifestyle. Postmodern meaning... Tolerance means accepting that each individual's beliefs, values, lifestyles, and truth claims are equal. The word acceptance, it used to mean embracing people for who they are, not necessarily for what they say or do. The postmodern meaning is endorsing and even praising others for their beliefs and lifestyle choices. If I see one more politician or one more actor or actress get up in a public setting in order to praise somebody for coming out of the closet. It's an endorsement. It is a, is a life that's given to now. Now we must affirm those that are doing things that just years ago we called into question. Moral judgments. It used to mean certain things are morally right and wrong as determined by God. Postmodern meaning says we have no right to judge another person's view or behavior. Now, if you haven't noticed, listen to me carefully, if you haven't noticed that in news broadcasts, in the way in which uh, the debates are being held for uh, the presidential office that's coming, if you have not noticed how it is taboo to tell somebody else that what they believe is wrong, then you are not paying attention. You're not a good person to live in the Netherlands. You live below sea level. You better pay attention to the waterline. You are in this world, and that philosophy is eager to get into you as well. Personal rights. It used to mean everyone has the right to be treated justly under the law. Postmodern belief says everyone has the right to do what he or she believes is best for himself or herself. That's very different. Truth. Truth used to mean an absolute standard of right and wrong. Postmodern meaning is whatever is right for you. Now, what, is, what does this look like when it puts on clothing and walks around? Listen to this little story that Josh McDowell puts in his book. This little exchange between a mother and a daughter. Goodbye, Indira, Melanie called from her door as her dark-skinned friend walked to her car. She closed the door and went to the kitchen where her mother was preparing dinner. Indira seems like a very nice girl, said Melanie's mother as she took a bowl from the microwave. She's quite mannerly and polite. I was wondering about the little dark spot on her forehead. Is that some religious mark? Yes, replied Melanie. She's Hindu. Her family is from India. 
What an opportunity for you, her mother responded. Since the two of you are becoming such good friends, you can be a Christian witness to her. I don't think so, Mom. You see, she... What do you mean you don't think so? Surely with as much time as you spend with Indira, you, would, you wouldn't hesitate to let her know you're a Christian. Well, Mom, that, that's just the problem, replied Melody as she began to set the table. Indira believes that her religion is right for her. And I don't need to tell her otherwise. Because really, when you get right down to it, who's to say? Who's to say, Melanie's mother said, set the roast on the table and looked at her daughter. God's to say, that's who. Surely you don't believe that Hinduism could possibly be true. The point is that Indira believes it to be true, replied Melanie. And I just don't think I have the right to tell her she's wrong. Okay, now that's how this thinking plays out in an everyday setting of our lives. This hands-off approach, don't, don't tell anybody they're wrong. Because you really, you know, in all humility, truth really can't be known anyway, so who knows where to draw the line anyway? So who knows who's right and who's wrong anymore? Postmodernism, you notice it says, postmodernism is the culture's protest against authority, absolutes, certainty, and convictions. That's what postmodernism is doing. It is protesting authority. It does not want to be ruled over. It doesn't want anybody to have an authoritative position on anything to tell the world. You have to conform to this. Postmodernism does not want authority. It doesn't want absolutes. It doesn't want certainty, and it doesn't want convictions. Now, my question is, what kind of world will this create? And this philosophy is rampant and moving quickly. A world without absolutes, borders, or measurements is heading for anarchy. You you can't live a life without some reference point for all of life to come to. You, You can't just unmoor humanity and let him drift and you don't know whether you're a mile offshore or not. You have no reference point. There's no sense of a compass heading. You can't live life without a reference point. You have to have truth in order to live. God created him to be that reference point, him to be that authority, him to be the source of convictions. But postmodernism is moving away from any idea that those elements would ever be in our society. Now, help me understand this. What on earth is the legal system going to do in this day? How do you tell who's right and who's wrong? Because the legal system is going to eventually embrace the postmodern philosophy that's going to say, well, what's right for you is right for you, even if it's not right for this guy. I mean, what's right for you? How do you bring two people into a situation where one's suing the other or one's committed a crime? How do you define what a crime is? You have to say something's right and something's wrong. Listen, one of the greatest legal travesties in our time has been Roe versus Wade. And what was interesting, and this is where postmodernism begins to get its, its flavoring. Roe versus Wade was about what was right for the individual, not about what was right. You understand the difference? The argument for Roe versus Wade is what's right for the mama. Which in a God-defined love, that's not even right for her. It's, it's a terrible thing that she's about to do. To herself. But the issue is, this person's in crisis. You're not sympathetic. 
This is a genuine need. This is right for her in that moment of her life. Not whether it's right, but whether it's right for her. And this, this is true in all kinds of litigation today. I heard, a, I heard a story the other day. This was unbelievable. This makes me feel sorry, Bill, for you and the other attorneys in our midst. This guy, there was a guy who went to a, a dry cleaner and his pants were lost. And he sued the dry cleaner for millions of dollars. Millions of dollars over lost pants. And it made it to the court system. And the court actually had to take time and rule on it. Where is the clerk who just has personal convictions and says, excuse me, sir, but you're an idiot. You know, please go home. Learn to knit. Do something with your life. Millions of dollars over a lost pair of pants, you know, was inconvenience and pain and suffering. This is the world that we live in. What's right for the individual is now what's right. Well, mark my words. I'll tell you, in 10 to 15 years, you're going to have an education crisis on your hands like you've never seen. And the reason is going to be not, not because of necessarily, it's related to this, violence in school or poor educational standards, not the typical stuff. The problem is you're not going to have anybody who wants to teach these kids. One, you don't pay teachers enough as it is. All you teachers here, uh, you're, you're martyrs, I think. You lay your life down for something that takes a huge amount of time and you don't get paid enough to do it anyway. Everybody who's a teacher is eventually going to get sick of trying to teach kids that are so out of control. I'm here to, I have yet to talk to. If you're a teacher here, you probably can come up and tell me this. Every teacher I talk to lately, every teacher, I just have casual conversation. So, how's it going in your school? Eventually, it leads to, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to this school over here, and I couldn't believe it opened up. Well, why is the school openings open up for teachers? Well, because a lot of the teachers have been teaching for years. They're all retiring. Really? Why are they retiring? Because they can't control their classrooms anymore. They can't stand the environment. I ran into somebody the other day, hadn't seen them in years, say, hey, are your daughter's still teaching? Yeah, she's still liking it? Well, um, not really. It's just the kids are so out of control. Yeah, these are people who are teaching kindergarten. I had a conversation with, with Gail the other day. Just teaching kindergarten. Kindergarten. Here's a kindergarten teacher who doesn't want to teach kindergarten. Good night. They don't even carry Uzis until they're in fourth grade. <laughs> what, what are you going to do in a few years? Now, where is this coming from? It's coming from that postmodern muck of you can't tell people what's right and wrong. It's coming from a society that doesn't want any absolutes. There's no certainty. There's no convictions. There's no standards. So we don't have a definition for a family anymore in our culture. It used to be that, you know, problems in the home got addressed. Well, now it's wrong to tell people that there's a problem in your home. The way you're raising your children, that's wrong. Well, that may be wrong to you, but it's not wrong to me. I raise them the way I want. There's no agreement. This, this is headed for what the Bible calls each man does what's right in his own eyes. And society is going to come to a crippling situation where sin is going to run rampant because we've, we've got a philosophy that's going to eat us for lunch. Cultural morality in our present day world. Relativism, subjectivism, and anti-absolutism opens the door to what I'm going to label multi-morality. You can't really have 
immorality anymore. In order to have immorality, you have to have morality. Immorality is a deviation from morality. So to have morality, you're going to have to draw a line somewhere and say anything that deviates off of this is immorality. Well, in the postmodern world, you're not allowed to do that. There aren't any absolutes. You can't label morality. Therefore, it's wrong for you to say that's immorality. See, do you see the way you undo those things? Just unscrew the convictions about what morality is, and now you don't have immorality anymore. You can't have it. So now what we have instead is multi-morality. It's just different views, different ways to do things. And what's, what's been the biggest headline issue is sexual orientation in our lifetime. Sexual orientation. Just think with me for a moment. If you've paid attention, been alive for a little while. Homosexuality over the past just 20 years. Just take 20 years and go back 20 years and think how the world addressed the issue of homosexuality versus how it addresses it today. 20 years ago, it was illegal. You'd go to jail. Even in New Orleans, there were sodomy laws. Today, we've moved from illegal to don't ask, don't tell, which is interesting to hear the politicians talk about that policy now. You know, Hillary Clinton, whose husband came up with it, uh, has had to defend it. And all the other candidates just saying how stupid it is, how ridiculous it is. That's just a stupid policy. Because of where we've come from. See, it would have been very uncomfortable in the world in which Bill Clinton was leading for him to just come right out at that moment and say, this is stupid, this is a stupid law. Oh, but now, today, it's fashionable. We've moved from illegal to now, states are forming laws left and right for civil unions. Same-sex marriages. The families being redefined. In just 20 years, something like homosexuality has become normative. Hal Mueller says, in the state of California, those who would be foster parents are now required to pledge that they will say nothing that is in any way opposed to homosexuality or to any chosen sexual lifestyle. See, it's wrong for you to say something is wrong. Don't, don't raise your hand on this, but I just, I just, I'm, give me a little permission here. I'm going to, I want to do a little bit of a, a blood test on you for a moment to find out if there's any traces of postmodernism in any of us. So don't raise your hands. How many believe that homosex, homosexuality is lewd behavior? It is indecent, lewd behavior. How many believe that Pedophilia or incest is lewd behavior. How many of you are having a problem that I put homosexuality right next door to pedophilia and incest? Why are we so much more comfortable with homosexuality? Why are we kind of like, whoa, 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 Keith... There could be somebody here who's homosexual, Keith. You're saying that. They they could be very uncomfortable about that. Did you feel that way when I said pedophile? Did you feel like, oh, Keith, there could be be some incestual relationships here. There there could be somebody who's a practicing pedophile here. You you need to be careful. You might run that guy off. Did you feel that way when I said that? Because our postmodern culture is teaching us to be okay with homosexuality. It's teaching us it's normal, it's acceptable, it's redefining, 
It's a person's choice. It's a sexual orientation. There are just differences among us. But where, do, where does this stop? Can I just, can I just make us think? I'm, this is going to be a little bit gross. But can I just make us think for a second? Where does this stop? Tell me, what's the difference between an individual who feels the urge, personally, just a personal urge, to pursue a sexual relationship with somebody of the same sex. What's the difference between that person's freedom of expression and a person who desires to pursue a sexual relationship with a child? Well, it's, it's his personal desire. It's his own conviction. It's what he wants. Well, who are you to tell him he's wrong? Well, you can't have, You can't do that. That's a child. Oh, well, at what age do you become an adult? Well, 18. Absolutely, 18. You sure, you know, maybe some kids mature faster. 14 maybe for some? Do you understand the hypocrisy and the, and the, the trying to create laws? Wasn't there just a case in the news uh, a couple of months ago of some teacher, some woman who was having a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old student? She's going to jail. Well, why? She wanted to do it, and he wanted to do it. Well, he's 15. So? Who made up 18 is the magic line in the sand? Who made that up? That's a rule, isn't it? Well, that's not right to impose that kind of a rule. I mean, if you're going to really take this philosophy and run with it, you're going to have to legalize all kinds of things. See, homosexuality, why would I take a position on homosexuality? Because the Bible takes a position on it. Because there's a definition for how I'm to view homosexuality in the Bible. There's a God who already has said... Here's my stated view on that issue. Well, that's absolutist. That's authoritarian. Yes, that's exactly right. And the same community, the same culture that says, you know, we're okay moving homosexuality out of the realm of wrong into the realm of acceptable and alternative lifestyle. You choose yours, I'll choose mine. We're all doing what we feel like is the right thing to do. Who are we to tell somebody they're wrong? Will you do that for a pedophile? Not at this point. But I'm not sure that our culture would have done it for a homosexual 50 years ago. You understand, the culture is moving. The way we think is moving. The philosophy that corners you is going to move into a place where you trying to say that's wrong, well, they've come up with a way to be able to say, well, you know, it's not right for you to say that something's wrong. See, we've done away with the line of morality by attacking that view that there is such a thing and that we could ever understand it anyway. We'll do away with morality. Now we have thrown open the floodgate to immorality. Now there's no immorality. There's just alternatives. There's just variety. There's just multi-morality. It just takes different shapes for different people, you see. Let me move into the realm of religion here before I run out of time. This week... I'm going to hit on just religion in general. Next week, I'm going to hit on an aspect of religious expression that is particularly troubling because it's finding its home in the evangelical churches. How many of you guys have ever heard of a movement within Christianity called the Emergent Church? See your hands if you know. Think about that. More than I thought. Well, a bunch of pivot people, that's why. (laughs) Well, we're going to learn a little bit about the Emergent Church because I think it represents... Um, philosophy gone bad, but finding its way into how we view Scripture 
and how we walk with Scripture and how we put on truth. But I just want to deal with religion in the postmodern setting this week. First, postmodern religion opens the door to universalism. Right, since you really can't be sure about whatever it is that you believe, anything could possibly be the truth. Anything could be. We can't really be sure. I'm biased. I'm, I'm not capable of really fully understanding things. So almost anything could be true. So now we, we, are, we have primed the, the pump for it's not what you believe, but just that you believe. That's what we've created. But listen to this from Time magazine. This is in our culture, soon to be coming to a theater near you. Today's pluralism holds that all religions are equally true. It sees the world as a religious garden through which we can wander, plucking the flowers that smell sweetest to us. The ultimate test of what is authentic is how it makes us feel. Religion is merely a preference, not unlike the choice of a meal or the color of your car. Time magazine recently heralded this all religions are the same idea with a flag draped Subscribe now, ad bearing the banner, God, Allah, Krishna, Rahu Guru, Jehovah bless America. Never mind that the names invoked represent monotheist, Trinitarian monotheist, polytheist. It's all the same as time sees it. See, so religion today, and it's very comfortable with all these contradictions, you know, all these things are God. Well, you know, there's elements of God that are just merely a concept and not even a person. And then there's different people being defined as God in the history of, of different religions. But that's okay. You see, you've you got to be comfortable with contradictions, see, because none of us can really figure this thing out anyway. So, you know, if that's how you see it, who knows? You could be right. You know, I see it differently, and that, that works for me, and that works for you. Do you understand? This is the pluralism that's coming into the way people think. And it could be the way we think as well in the same article Ken Hughes says six weeks after the September 11th terrorist attack Reverend Robert Schuler, minister of the 10,000 member Crystal Cathedral sat in a Villa Park Illinois mosque with Louis Farrakhan Iman Wallace Dean Muhammad Schuler was on tour to promote his new autobiography My Journey but after September 11th he said I wanted to have evenings of hope the event was interfaith with, with Muslims, Christians, Jews, and Sikhs in attendance, as the Chicago Tribune reported it. Quote, For decades, Schuler said he was a proponent of the kind of proselytizing that pushed Muslims to become Christians. Then he realized that asking people to, become, to change their faith was, quote, utterly ridiculous. Schuler's first interaction with a Muslim group came four years ago when Muhammad invited him to give the opening sermon at the Muslim American Society's New, Jer- New Jersey Convention. You guys need to really get worried if I ever get invited to speak at something like that. <laughs> and in 1999, he was asked by the Grand Mufti of Syria to preach in Damascus. When I met the Grand Mufti, I sensed the presence of God. Do you understand the subjectivism? Now, if you want to do a little, a little test of your blood here on postmodernism, how many of us put greater stock in what we sense and feel than in what the Bible says? That's postmodernism. That's the culture has seeped into your bloodstream. Well, I, but you don't understand. I mean, I really feel like the Lord. Well, that's, you dressed it up in Christian lingo. But it's you escaping the objectivity of God into the subjectivity. And it doesn't mean there aren't subjective realms of our lives. 
But you just need to be careful in how you hold that. Because obviously, whatever you sensed, pal, it was not the presence of God. I don't care how convinced you were. The two men, he said, focused on similarities, not differences. The purpose of religion, quote, the purpose of religion is not to say, I have all the answers and my job is to convert you. That road leads to the Twin Towers. That attitude is an invitation to extremists, he said. After September 11th, he said the emphasis should move from proselytizing to just trying to help everybody who hurts and hopes. Now, please pay attention to that because that is exactly where the emphasis has moved. It is moved into the need of man. Religion is about the need of man. Religion is no longer about the glory of God. Religion is about the need of man. So all of you who are religious who want to sign on for that, you're welcome to the community. Come be a part of the community that's all into the need of man. A number of years ago, there was a gathering of scholars and modern theologians who got together and signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. This was evangelical leaders, some that, that we would greatly respect, and very, were very surprised to see them sign this document. Catholic leaders who came together and signed a document. Now, if you don't pay attention to history, you don't realize why that is such a, an amazing thing that happened. Because, you see, it was convictions and beliefs that, that formed the Reformation the Reformation back in the 15th and 16th century was individuals who were looking at Scripture and looking at Catholic teaching and looking at Scripture and saying these two don't go together. And while they tried to peacefully adjust the church in its direction, the Catholic Church turned back to the community and said, absolutely, we disagree with you and you need to stop saying these things. So the Catholic Church held its convictions strongly, so much so that it burned people at the stake. If you disagree with it, there wasn't no signing any documents together going on in the 15th and 16th century. Well, except for the Council of Trent. If you're Catholic, you may have never read the Council of Trent. It was a Catholic meeting held at the end of the 1500s that basically declared that all views, all doctrines held by the Reformation teachers were anathema. If you choose to believe them, you are cut off from the grace of the church. That document, by the way, is still in existence and still being enforced. Now, you don't know that because it's not said very well publicly. But it's never been recanted. It's never gone back. Now, on the, on the Reformation side, remember, there's Catholicism, there's Protestantism. You paid attention to what's in that word. Protestantism. These guys were protesting. They were saying, the church has gone awry. It is no longer on track biblically. It, they are teaching justification by works. The Bible is teaching justification by grace through faith. We can't possibly be on the same page together. And even under the threat of losing their lives, these folks would not change their position. What's the difference between then and now? Well, the culture back then firmly held convictions, which, by the way, this is before Enlightenment. This is more before modernism. People actually did think before that time. And they held their convictions strongly, so much so that you would go to war and hold your ground. Today, it's just, you know, make love, not war. Let's just all come together. Let's be at peace. Listen, nothing has changed theologically. Nothing has changed from the 15th and 16th century differences between Protestantism and Catholicism. How you can come together and sign a document saying that we're all good buddies now is because of a postmodern view of how you hold your convictions. 
Who knows who could be right? That's the world that we're living in. I want to hit this point here real quickly, and I'm going to stop in just a second. And this is one I'll, I'll unfold a little bit more next week. But in the postmodern religion, the gospel message is not important. Only gospel behavior is important. The gospel message is not important. Only gospel behavior, only social interaction, only helping your fellow man, only stepping into the needs of humanity, that's critical. It's birth what, what is being termed red-letter Christians. Red-letter Christians are the ones who only like the red-letter elements that are in the Bible because it's what Jesus said. Well, I don't really know how they can possibly like what he had to say. They, they tend to like what he did. It's in the like that he was embracing, that he loved on people, the down and out, he'd reach out to them, he'd, he'd pray for them, heal them, console them, care for them. So this, this is a religion that wants the dynamics of the gospel in terms of how we live towards humanity. It doesn't want the dynamic of the gospel in how we live toward God. This has huge ramifications for the future of the church. And you'll see next week, within evangelical churches, it's not just the world's religion, within evangelical churches, the shift is on away from religion that's oriented toward God, God-centered religion, to a religion that's oriented towards man. And it's all about, have you gone out and served your community lately? What are you doing to impact them? And this religion is all over the place. I came across this article last week. Sunday newspaper. Barack Obama says religion has role in politics. Faith needs to unite, not divide, he says. Listen, addressing the 50th anniversary convention of his own denomination, the United Church of Christ, Senator Barack Obama said Saturday that the religious right had hijacked faith and divided the country by exploiting issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, and school prayer. But Obama said that religion has a rightful role in American politics and he praised people of faith who he said are now using their influence to unite Americans against problems like poverty, AIDS, the health care crisis and violence in Darfur. Quote, my faith teaches me that I can sit in church and pray all I want, but I won't be fulfilling God's will unless I go out and do the Lord's work. He said, speaking before more than 9,000 people at the Hartford Civic Center, Obama told the audience he had been a spiritual skeptic raised in no particular tradition. In his 20s as a community organizer, listen, in his 20s as a community organizer working with churches in Chicago, ministers told him, if you're going, if you're organizing churches, it might be helpful if you went to church sometimes. Do you see what the priority is? About, not about relating to God. It's about community activity. And if, if, that's your, if that's your hobby, you might want to be around the church a little bit because that, that's their hobby too. He joined Trinity United Church of Christ, moved by the sermons of, his, of its senior pastor. Obama used his 45-minute speech to recall the church's proud history of involvement in the American Revolution and the abolition and civil rights movements. You see where the emphasis is. The church exists for man's benefit. Now, I'm going to balance this next week, but you just need to hear what's not being said in these statements. But, quote, but somehow, somewhere along the way, faith stopped being used to bring us together, Obama said. Faith started being used to drive us apart. Faith got hijacked. 
He attributed this partly to the so-called leaders of the Christian right, who've been all too eager to exploit what divides us. Yet he said that in the travels, he, is, he had sensed an awakening of an interfaith movement of progressiveness. I'm not sure I want Barack Obama defining for me what progress is for the church. I don't think that's where I want to go. But do you understand, this, this is the theater into which the thought processes of postmodernism are soaking in the church. We're all about social engagement. But we're not about what we believe. No, people believe of a whole bunch of things. And who can really discern anyway what's the right way? You understand, the Bible doesn't sound that way. Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The emphasis in the Bible is on believing. Now, there's a problem if believing doesn't turn into living, but the emphasis doesn't start with living and, and end up with who knows what by way of belief. It starts with believing. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, not whoever shows up at the feed the homeless shelter and does something good for the cause of humanity, which obviously the Bible should cause us to do those things by our relationship with Christ. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Over and over again, the Scripture's emphasis, Galatians 2, is on belief. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk about, Mr. Obama, you want to talk about hijacking faith, use faith as it's used biblically. You want to call yourself a Christian? Use faith as it's used biblically. It's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not faith in some morality that anybody can sign on to and anybody can be a part of. It's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's not Christian faith. You just want it to be generic religion, use it that way. But do not stand up in a convention that calls itself Christian and say that somebody hijacked faith and you don't even mention the necessity of believing in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. See that word, that language? No one. This is why the Bible will not be read well by postmodernists. No one. That's an exclusive element. It's, it's absolute. It draws a line. It's not a blurry line. It's a distinct line. And our culture will not embrace that. Now, let me, let me do one last blood test here. I didn't put this point in your outline. You can write it in. It should be one more. Postmodern religion is anti-exclusiveness. There simply cannot be just one way to do anything. Certainly not just one way to be saved. That can't possibly be the case. Listen to this analysis from Mr. McDowell. Why is it that the vast majority of our own church kids, 65%, either believes or suspects that there is, quote, no way to tell which religion is true? Because your kids and mine have been influenced to believe that Christianity can't be exclusively true. 
You see, in your young people's minds, no one has the right to assert that one religion is better than another. They are taught and have adopted the creed of the culture that says all beliefs are equal. Recently, Newsweek and BeliefNet asked 1,004 Americans this question. Can a good person who doesn't share your religious beliefs attain salvation or go to heaven? 68% of evangelical Protestants said yes. 68% of evangelical Protestants said yes? The thinking is, quote, it's judgmental and intolerant to say that one person is right and everyone who doesn't believe like him or her is wrong. Test your own blood work here. How many are here today, you're uncomfortable with the thought that there is no salvation for anyone apart from Jesus Christ? Now test your own blood here. Because you're here today because that's okay for you. You believe that. Well, how about if the person who doesn't believe that, it's not about agreeing with you. It's about agreeing with a truth principle that exists outside of us. But how comfortable are you with the thought that even though this is okay with you, the guy over there who doesn't believe it, for whatever reason, has no hope of salvation? Well, I don't don't know about that. See, I've seen within Christianity, I've heard Christians, people that I've talked with, have conversations with, who don't buy into the exclusiveness of Christ. That there is no other way to be saved apart from Jesus Christ. Listen, that's what the Bible says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. No one means no one. There is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. See, postmodernism, because of the way it handles information, because of the way it concludes that if there is anything like absolute information or truth out there, I can't possibly know it anyway, so I've just kind of got to give room for all kinds of possibilities. So, you know, I believe in Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm, I believe I'm saved and I believe I'm going to heaven. But, you know, who am I to tell that guy that he's wrong? And if right now I'm, I'm playing a guitar string in you, you got more postmodernism in you than you think you do. And it's a great concern I have for the church. These philosophies, this way of handling information is in us. It's already, there's already been a breach in the walls. And the salt water of the, of the world is flowing into the way we think and the way we hold our convictions. Next week, now go ahead and come up, we're going to close. Next week, we're going to look more closely at how this hits closer to home some things I think we need to be much more wise and careful about. But please consider, please consider where you find yourself in this. Like, I mean, this is, I, I picked some points here. I hope you guys don't mind. Well, I don't mind. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for this. Uh, the, I know that I've stroked some people the wrong way today. I'd rather you get stroked by the truth than like every week of coming. I like, I like, you know, I like the church. I like what you have to say. You know, I, I'd, I'd rather you come face to face with the truth and let it benefit your life. It is a levy of protection for you. And if anything I've said today is something you've kind of been weak about, I want you to pick up a newspaper article and read 
about the 17th Street Canal. I want you to read about the fact when they drove pilings, they designed them wrong. I want you to read about the fact that it sat on top of some sediment that was too loose. And when push came to shove, it moved the whole wall and flooded the city. I want you to read about that. Because if the way you hold these issues in your life is weak, the world is coming to press on your wall and your truth is going to cave in. Right? I, I realize I have to take a chance in the city of New Orleans by drawing distinctives between Catholicism and Protestantism. I realize that. I realize that there are some here who you don't want that to be touched. It's, a, it's, it's the history of your life. It's the traditions of your life. It needs to be touched. Jesus Christ is here to touch everything about who you are. Everything about who I am. And so if you've come out of a Catholic background, come talk to me afterwards. So did I. You know how much my mind needed to be renewed? You're telling me that something I believed as a Catholic was wrong? I'm telling you people were burned at the stake over these things. I'm telling you that there were people who felt so strongly about them that they were willing to die and lay their lives down for them. Yeah, I'm telling you that there's something wrong. And if we've never looked, you're telling me I should believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that there's no other way to God but through Him? Yes. Otherwise, you're becoming one of those red-letter Christians who only like a few things that are said in the Bible, and I think I'll run off and do them. Please, help me understand, those who want to wear the label Christian, how can you join in the mission of Jesus if you don't share the message of Jesus? Jesus didn't come to earth and say, listen, I'm just here to help clean up some mess. understand you guys got a mess on your hands. There's some problems going on. There's mistreatment. The poor, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. There's people with AIDS, and there's problems here, and there's communities that don't care. We've got to come together, folks. Come on now. That doesn't sound like the guy who stood up and said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. I had a conversation with a woman in Starbucks a couple of weeks ago. She was the embodiment of postmodernism. She called herself a Christian universalist. I, I would have been fine with the universal thing. I just wish she'd have ditched the Christian part. We started talking a little bit about, what do you think about Jesus? Well, who is he to you? What do you understand about him? Oh, he was, he was the ultimate man. He, he was so loving. He's what we should all be aspiring to be. He loved people. He was kind. He was caring. Really? Did, did you know that Jesus said this? Did you know Jesus said things like this? And I'd start telling her some of the things that weren't quite as pleasant and more palatable about Jesus. And, you know, she'd kind of just get that, and then I'd ask him, have you ever read the Bible? No, no, I've never read the Bible. So I took the Bible out and I handed it to her and I let her begin to read parts of it. It was interesting. See, her face actually did this. She'd never read the Bible. Opened up to John, showed her who Jesus claimed to be, and she actually she just kind of zoned me out. And she started doing this. She kept reading and reading and reading and reading. Finally, she, you know, she stopped to listen to whatever else I had to say. What was interesting is her universalist thinking. And I asked her about right and wrong. I said, do you believe that there's right and wrong in the world? She paused for just a second. No. No right and wrong. So how is it that just a moment ago you were, you were lauding the nobility of Jesus' love? Why, why is that a noble thing? If there's no right and wrong, what makes that any more applaudable than anything else? 
if there's no scale to set anything on, how is this better than that? I mean, there's no right and wrong, right? I said, what about, what about if I just told you right now, I hate you? Am I wrong? If I told you I hate everybody in this restaurant, and I hate people of a certain race, is that, is that wrong? You know, she's in a real pickle now. <laughs> but you see the inconsistency of thought here that marries together all these different ideas. Now, where is this going to play out for us? It's going to play out in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern. Some translations say you may know what is the will of God. Can you know truth, oh postmodern person? Yes, you can. Are you fallible, limited, come from a weird background and have strange views on life? Yes, you do. That's why your mind needs to be renewed. But it doesn't mean you can't know the truth. You can know the truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, open our eyes and you can only do that. You are alone capable of giving us eyes to see. Or there's a great deal of truth in the fact that in and of ourselves, we would not be able to discern truth. We would not be able to understand it. Who knows what's right? Until you come and you bring convictions and you stir our hearts and you bear witness in our hearts and we begin to conclude, yes, there is a right way. You are the right way. God, thank you for the day you've done that in our lives. God, I pray this morning for some who perhaps are here who are not sure about a relationship with you. They're here, they've been around religion, they're okay with who you are, but they're not really sure that they'd be Christians the way the Bible sounds. I'm sure they really believe that Jesus is the only way. But, but Lord, perhaps they're here this morning, and, and even this morning, Lord, you have been working in their hearts differently than that. There's something in them right now even saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Or for any of you who are here that you have allowed that to make sense to them this morning. Or that you would draw them further and they would find themselves turning to you and say, I want a relationship with you. God, I want you in my life. I give you all my ideas. I give you all that I am. Would you come into my life? Help me to think. Help me to understand. I want to put my faith and my hope in you. God, for those that are here who have already done that at some point in their life, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. God, make us like the people who live in the Netherlands. Ever watchful on the walls of truth in our lives as to where am I beginning to see weakness where is the world trying to pour in? Beyond the loud, noisy music and movies, God, into the very ways in which I think. Help us, O oh God, to keep the world both out of our hearts and out of our heads. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I bless you guys this week.